65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Welcome back to the second hour of Spanning the State on our first day of the WTMJ new lineup. My guest co-host today is Mike Spaulding. Mike, how are you feeling? You're halfway through the first day of the new era of WTMJ. I feel great. I got here Good. at 4.30 in the morning. I've uh, drank a bunch of coffee, some big red gum, and now a Snapple. So I'm just Big riding. red gum? Yeah, big wow. red guy. It's hard to find. It is hard to find. I feel like the flavor of big red gum doesn't last very long. It does, and it's different now. Like, when we were kids, it was spicy. Yeah, it's now not. Now it's just like sweet cinnamon. So I'm not the biggest fan of that, but... Have yeah. you gone through the entire pack? Was it a five pack or a twenty five pack? It was like the I don't what what's the normal size like fourteen sticks. Okay, it's like the pocket one. Was it it still like hard. A pack of cigarettes. I feel like big red. No, what was the one that was always very hard? Juicy fruit. I think juicy, juicy fruit. It's very crispy. Yes. No, these. I mean, they're not like the soft. That's how I like my gum crispy. Mm. It softens <laughs> up once you chew it for a little while. You get through it. Uh, no, I'm feeling great. I, I uh, talking text line's been nice, which is always great. So yeah, I'm excited. It's been uh, it's been a great day. It's been a long haul for you and for Tiff and everyone who's been working on this. So hats off. I hope you have celebratory drinks planned, even though today is just the first day of the rest of your life. Even though it's <laughs> even though it's a Monday, <laughs> uh, we'll get there. All right. Well, coming up this hour, it is President's Day, and so I thought we would have some fun with a little President's Day trivia of different stories and times. What president did what? In Wisconsin. So that's coming up at the second half of this hour. And then we're also going to reflect on the legacy of American Girl dolls. And, you know, it's humbling beginning, humble beginning in Dane County, the year I was born in 1986. And the end of an era and of a chapter with the news that the Middleton office is is closing. And so we will uh, do that at the end of this hour. But Billstead, how much debt? Call did me you... Billstead again. Oh my gosh, why am I <laughs> Spalding? Spalding, how much? How... Did you take out student loans? Uh, yes, not a, not a ton though. How long did it take you to pay them off? A uh, few years. I think I paid them off when I was thirty-two. So ten years. Ten years, but wow. I, I did like the pay as you earn, and when you start in radio, you don't earn a whole lot. So I wasn't paying a whole lot. So it went on longer than it probably should have. Um, but my wife has student loans, and we're still okay. and we're still paying those off together. Yep, because uh, that's what happens when you get married. It, yes, Your debt just, is my debt. Yes, we. I had no student loan. I, you know, I say we have like half debt because I don't have any. She had some, so I just picture in my brain we just split it in half, and we're just going to pay our our fair share. Uh, but yeah, I my I have a cousin who is a doctor in New York, tons of student loan debt. He's like mm-hmm. the smartest person I've ever met. So if that person is in debt of like north of a hundred thousand dollars, then the the barrier to entry for the me's of the world is you know pretty pretty daunting. The nice thing is when you're 17, you don't really think about what it's going to be like when you're 35. No, <laughs> not at all. And I think about it because I was in the situation where I had already moved to California. I didn't go to college right away. I took about two years off when I was still acting, and then I decided to go to community college. Started there, which was very affordable. And then the community college in Cal- community college system in California makes it very easy to transfer to a state, uh, the state schools or to the UC system. And I ended up graduating from UC Berkeley. And despite two years, not, you know, two years in a state, uh, in a tech school, two years at a UC, and the fact that I was in state at that point, but I still graduated with debt. And I luckily was able to pay it off within about 
five to six years, but it's hard to go to school now without scholarship money, without having some sort of debt or very wealthy parents. And so our guest, when we come back, is going to kind of break down how we got here. Sarah Goldrick-Rabb is a former UW professor at Madison, uh, and she's also authored a book called Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream. And she's the founder of the Hope Center, which is an action research center that tries to address the basic needs and insecurities of students who are getting their post-secondary degree. And so when we come back, Sarah Goldrick-Rabb will be here and we'll talk more about how we got here and potentially how we can get ourselves out of this much student debt. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I'm your host, Kristen Bry, along with Mike Spaulding, and we're talking college debt and student loans. How did we get here? So I'm so excited to talk to our next guest, who was former, formerly a professor at UW. Sarah Goldrick-Rabb is the uh, author of Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream, and she is an expert on how we got here and solutions to how we can make school. This is a choice that we can make school more affordable, more affordable. And so whether it's policy, whether it's funding. And so I'm so excited to welcome Sarah Goldrick Rabb. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to have you. So one of the things that I think is not common knowledge is the great debate that happened in the sixties, as far as when we wanted as a country, we decided that it was, uh, Good for us to have more people going to college. And yet there was a discussion on who should pay for it. And so can you tell us more about how this, our problem today, really spans back to the 60s? Yeah, it definitely does. That's a time, like you said, when there was big lofty uh, federal policy goal was set. It essentially said that we think people should be able to go to college, not based on whether or not their family is wealthy but based on their talent and interest in going to college. And that's sort of the American dream, right? That if you work hard, you can get ahead. And if you want to learn more, that you can go to college. Well, at that time, they were trying to figure out how to do this. And they were also at the same time trying to figure out what the real problem was. And what policymakers concluded was that there was a small number of people from the very poorest families who would need help paying for college which I know is hard to believe now when the fact is that the vast majority of people need help mm-hmm. for college. So what they decided to do was fund these grants that would go only to the very lowest income people and essentially leave everyone else to go ahead and pay their bills. And so they created this program that's sort of like a voucher. And that is exactly what it does. It goes to individual students and they take it to colleges in different states. and They try to get a discount. But what they failed to understand was the behavior of those states. So for example, in order to make college affordable, it has to be a partnership between the federal government and states. But a lot of states never agreed that college should become affordable. Hmm. So when the federal government put in more money, states did not. And over time, what that meant was that as states said, we don't really care whether or not you go to college, you're on your own, then the price that they passed on to their constituents, their consumers, went up and up and up. As a result, that little tiny grant became 
really um, almost meaningless. So today it pays for a very tiny fraction of attending college if you get a Pell Grant. And all that it offered to the rest of us, and even to those low-income people, were loans. So we're here in a system that was badly designed, that misunderstood both the people it was meant to serve and misunderstood states. And we're obviously also in a tremendous amount of student debt. So, so Sarah, you know, when, when Kristen and I were kind of batting this around the office uh, last week and wanting to, to dive in a little bit, we were talking to people who went to college in the, the 80s and were able to work while going to school and literally pay per semester because of their part-time or, or maybe even full-time job as they were going to school. I, I just feel like since that time to where we're at right now, we were talking about UW-Madison for an out-of-state student. It's $59,000 a year. How did we get from being able to pay most of your tuition with a part-time job to in 2025, if I'm going to school, I'm looking at a $30,000, $50,000 per year price tag. That's right. I mean, you, you are. And by the way, it's not just if you're out of state. It's if you're in state, too. And even if you're somebody on financial aid, you can't even really working full-time pay this. It's that high. So, you know, there were a couple of things that were going on. Those people who went to college in the 80s were sort of lucky because there were policy changes that were happening in the 80s, and they were being spearheaded by Ronald Reagan. But they hadn't yet trickled down to make tuition go up. And it really was the end of the 80s and in the early 90s that we saw the effects of Reagan's changes at the federal level and of state changes in the state of Wisconsin that basically said, yep, you know what? More people are interested in going to college. Let them. It's on their dime. And the state, as more and more people went to college, did not keep raising its investment in the, in the state institutions or nowhere in financial aid. So I'm not saying there wasn't more funding for whether it's UWM, what, you know, whether it's the technical colleges. There wasn't some more money put in over time, but it was nothing in comparison to the number of people going. So the pie was being divided smaller and smaller and smaller. And so these people who say, hey, I bootstrapped my college, you know, my way through college and you should too. The irony is they did the opposite of bootstrap their way through college. They actually were made, able to go and able to work through college because the state was putting in proportionally a lot more money at the time. They actually got a ride from the state. It's today's students that aren't. So we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to talk about more about the research you've been doing on what we can do. What are the solutions? What are the policy solutions? How do we yep. actually, because in the first hour we talked about how the return on investment is there. There is still value in going to college, but we need to make it more affordable. So our guest, Sarah goldrick Rabbles, will be with us when we come back. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back. I'm your host, Kristen Bry. This is Spanning the State, and we're here with Michael Michael Spaulding. And we're also talking to Sarah Goldrick-Rabb, who's a former UW professor and author of Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and Betrayal of the American Dream. And with the couple minutes we have left with you, Sarah, I'd love to hear more about, in your research, in, which included following 3,000 students for six years, um, what are... What can we do, whether it's at the federal level, the state level, individual universities, as far as we know that for some, not for everyone, but for going to college is still there's a there's a return on that investment. But the investment is just too high. So what should we be advocating for to make it more achievable for more people? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, frankly, that people have to vote like this matters to them. 
I know that Wisconsin voters have a lot of different priorities. There's hardly one that's going to hit them more in their wallet than the cost of college. They need to act like it. So, I mean, if you look at the book, I show you charts about all the things that have happened over decades that have affected your 42 public colleges and universities in the state. And the fact of the matter is, is their budgets have been cut on a per student basis substantially over time. The UW system is one of the least affordable systems of public higher education in the entire country. The second thing is, but beyond, you know, electing a governor and a legislature that wants to support higher ed and therefore help families pay for college, is to hold the UW system accountable for who it gives money to. Right now in the UW system, the rich get richer. So on a per-student basis, the students at UW-Madison, the place that's hardest for the average Wisconsin person to get into, the place where people come with the most family money in hand and the best high school education, in other words, the place that should receive the least funding per student, is getting the most. And one of the places that's furthest behind in getting resources is UW-Milwaukee, a place where, you know, a city that frankly really needs people to be able to go to college so that they can get the skills they need, they need to work. Another thing that people can do is advocate for affordable housing for college students. The leading cause of student debt right now is actually not tuition, it's rent. And rent is affecting technical college students, and they're affecting all kinds of people. People think this is just about tuition. It's not. Full-time college students do not qualify for the low-income housing tax credit, which your developers across your state use to build private housing. We can change that. Your state legislators should be advocating in, in the, at D.C. in order to change that. It's another example. And the last thing is this. All over the country, states are advancing supports for students' basic needs for things like food and housing and child care. But Wisconsin has not passed a bill to put people on college campuses who can help if a student is on the verge of dropping out of college over a $200 utility bill. So they are. They're dropping out and they're in debt and they don't have a degree to pay for it. It's a disaster. Sarah, is there a sense at all of sort of we've done this to ourselves, meaning that colleges have become bloated? Because if you look, for example, in athletics, it's sort of an arms race. You know, if the University of Illinois does something to their athletic facility, well, then if I'm at UW-Madison and I want to recruit those players, then I'm also going to want to invest in something, not only what my competition did, but something bigger and better. So for those who say, well, cut from the college budgets. Is that a helpful strategy or is that more of a talking point? Yeah, it's more of a talking point because here's the thing. I mean, there's some truth in all of that, but that truth in your state only applies at UW-Madison and it only applies to a fraction of the problem. So if you take that argument and you swing that argument at a place like UW-La Crosse or Stout or Milwaukee, the fact of the matter is that isn't relevant. We are also doing it to ourselves, though, to the extent that we fetishize a really small group of colleges in this country that everybody thinks they have to go to when there are more than 4,000 colleges in the United States. So we could all do ourselves a favor by shutting up about places like Harvard or UNC Chapel Hill or University of Michigan or even UW-Madison and start sending our kids to the places that offer a decent value for education, teachers in the classroom who know what they're doing with these students and who are there to teach. I think there's a joke about getting people who went to Harvard to shut up about going to Harvard and it's mm-hmm. baked in there somewhere, but there, sir, there definitely is. And so I think that's a, I think that is one of the strongest points as far as I think specifically when it comes to 
advocating for two-year schools. I think I said at the beginning, uh, before you came, you joined us, Sarah, I started a two-year school in California, and it was the best thing I ever did, not only because it was made going to college more affordable, but also I got to learn how to go to school, which I think mm-hmm. this, this uh, need to go to school right away and have that dream, rethinking that is a great lesson. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Sighting uh, Unlimited, WTMJ News Time is two, uh, 229. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am your host, Kristen Bry, along with Michael Spaulding. You know why I think I kept calling you Bill Stead? Is because I'm so used to the Michael. Calling you by your first name is screwing me up. Oh, that's what it is? Because I'm so used to calling you Spaulding that all of a sudden I'm get, I'm, I have to throw a mic in front of it. And I think that's throwing me for a loop. My on-air name. Exactly. Michael. Our, it's President's Day. Is it? It is. Color me shocked. So, I thought we'd play a little game. I thought we'd play a fun Wisconsin President's Day game. Uh, Chris Ferran from the Journal Sentinel wrote a roundup of some of the more notable times that presidents visited Wisconsin. And so I took some of those stories and turned them into some trivia questions. We'll see. How Are you a, are you a history buff? Are you a president's buff? Uh, I'm a history buff more than I am a president's buff. I feel like I have a pretty good stretch starting like early 1900s through where we're at right now. You'll probably do But if fine. we're pre like 1900, if like we're pre Teddy Roosevelt, it, it gets a little wonky. There's only me. one that's pre Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, well, I just talked myself into some. If you would like to play along at home and give us your guesses, the WTMJ talk and text line is 855 616 1620. We'll see how many we get through. But I think, uh, I think you'll do well. I have all the faith in the world in you, Spalding. All right. Number one, this president gave what is considered to be his only recorded speech on agriculture at the Wisconsin State Fair in what was at the time in Milwaukee in 1859. Oh, okay. Uh, were they a sitting president? Or was no. It a, no. Um, can I pass? You, we're not going to come back to it, so you can just... Um, 1859. Uh, I, uh, I have no idea. Abraham Lincoln. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And, and what was made more, what was more surprising to me was that it was his only recorded speech on agriculture. Right here in Milwaukee. Right here in Milwaukee. All right, zero for one. All right, oh for one. <laughs> All right, number two. This president was shot in Milwaukee while he was campaigning as the candidate for the Progressive Party in 1912. It's Teddy Roosevelt. It was Teddy Roosevelt. And he gave his speech after. It, he did. And what was what saved him? The speech. No, what saved what saved him from being sh- when he got shot? What saved him from actually like piercing the oh, skin? Oh, his glasses. His glasses, and I guess the, how long his speech was because it was written on note cards. Like <laughs> yeah. it, it, like legitimately, is like several inches thick. Can you imagine? You're like shot, and the guy's like bleeding out from his chest, and he's like, first, let me talk about you know whatever wages. <laughs> All right. All right. One out of two. All right. Number three. This president set up a summer camp house in the Brule uh, River in Douglas County in 1923. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go Teddy Roosevelt again. It is not right. You think that they would do the same thing twice? Well, I don't know. Calvin Coolidge. Sure. 
Great Depression, Calvin Coolidge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. I think it's Brule, not Brule, too. I'll correct myself. Brule. Um, all right, number four. This The bench this president sat on during his 1960 campaign still sits at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel office. Richard Nixon. No. Similar era. Okay. Uh, not Gerald Ford. Um, not Reagan. Let's go older or younger. Camelot, but that's your clue. Uh, pass. JFK. Oh, okay. Nineteen six. Okay, all right. And so I wasn't there uh, JFK yet. That is still that's still, and I because I work at Journal Sentinel. That bench is still there with a picture of him and Jackie right next to him. Uh, all right, number five. The president introduced uh, this president. It was before he was president. Introduced Green Bay's new stadium. It wasn't Lambeau Field yet, but it is the Lambeau that we all know. In 1957, while he was vice president, Nixon. That is Nixon. All right, I yes. knew we were getting there. Yes. Um, all right, two, two more. We'll do two more. During his campaign in 1954, this president president took a tumble while bowling at Milwaukee's American Serb Hall. And Wayne, what year? This was during his campaign in 1984. 1984. Um, I'm going to go with Ronald Reagan. After. Uh, George Bush. First, uh, first, first, yep. And they actually, in in Chris's article in Journal Sentinel, they have a picture of George, uh, George H.W. Bush. Yeah, he did. He fell, he fell forward. I figured it wouldn't be Reagan. He was like too too smooth for fall. That's a very George H. W. Bush move. It's a trip and fall, and you're like, yeah, that guy's probably like a <laughs> yeah, like a policy wonk. Yeah, he tripped. Okay. Um. All right. This president had a sausage summit in 1996 in Wisconsin. I'm gonna go Bill Clinton. On that, that is one. absolutely Bill Clinton. It was with uh, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl. And uh, people there, I guess, Mater's and some of the other German restaurants were very upset that it was not uh, at one of their German establishments. That's a really good idea. The Sausage Summit? Sausage Summit. Do, do, do we know what they discussed? I don't. What did they discuss? Um, Whether or not I'm sure we could go back sausage and or not. <laughs> what it was? It was basically campaigning and diplomacy at the same time. Uh, all right. This is an easy one. Hopefully. This president threw out the first pitch at Miller Park in 2001. What It was the first pitch at Miller Park. It, that's George W. Bush. It is indeed. All right. So I missed what? Calvin Coolidge? I think you did pretty well. Yeah, I gave you a you couple hints. A little bit more. Yeah, the hints were very... The JFK one's going to hurt me it's for a while. That yeah. was a tough hang with myself there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, when we come back, uh, a legacy close to my heart as far as American Girl dolls. I am certainly in that millennial era of women who lived and grew up with these dolls. So we'll talk about that office closing when we come back. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am your host, Kristen Bry, and this story that uh, broke last week about the American Girl office in Middleton closing certainly touched my millennial woman's heart because I grew up not only having American Girl dolls, but having so much pride because they were from 
right outside my hometown. I grew up in Madison. And so, yes, Toymaker Mattel announced it will close its American Girl office in Middleton this spring. It's going to eliminate roughly 30 local jobs, and the company's distribution center in DeForest will not be impacted, but the closure is part of a larger effort to centralize American Girl's marketing, product design, and development, and PR, and all of the services um, at their headquarters in California. But it just, it comes on the heels of, I got a text a couple a week or so ago from my mom who was lamenting the fact that American girls is now going to start doing a partnership with Disney princesses and so much of what the original inspiration of American girls were, was an alternative to Barbie, right? It was these girls who were nine years old throughout history and they came with the books and really getting to go back in time and feel like these dolls were, you know, around the same age as once you were nine, having the responsibility of owning a hundred and fifty dollar doll. <laughs> what about you, Spaldy? Were you uh, were you a big American Girl doll fan? Uh, not the American <laughs> Girl doll necessarily, but I, I will say that I, I can appreciate this story because it's just one of those something that used to be quaint and small and unique. It just feels like it's kind of getting swallowed up, right? By like big IP, quote unquote. So, I to me the symbolism. Because what thirty jobs in Middleton, so it's not like it's the the city's largest. It's not employer. like Masterlock closing in Milwaukee, correct? Where it's several hundred now. Obviously, thirty people losing their job is, is never good. But there is like this sentimentality of, you know, when you see stuff that's made in Wisconsin, a Masterlock's a perfect example, like an incinerator, where you just see it somewhere and you're like, I know where that's at. Mm-hmm. That's made in Wisconsin. I'm like the biggest habitual that's made in Wisconsin person because mm-hmm. I just I don't know. I like having that little connection, and so. I totally understand where you would come from if you have some sort of sentimentality with the doll to go, not only do I think of the doll that I had or still do have, but also like it was part of it was created here or made here. And it was just kind of a unique thing. And now to see it probably in a movie theater near you when Barbie does a, uh, you know, re remake or Barbie two in five years and you're going to see, you know, American Girl doll or them dressed up like a Marvel superhero or whatever it is. Absolutely. Because actually last year was the last final American Girl doll sale. Uh, so I remember growing up and it used to be in a warehouse. By the time it ended, it was in the Alliant Energy Center. But it was a sale that benefited the Madison Children's Museum. And at least when I would go growing up and it was in a some big warehouse in Middleton, which was at the time certainly not as built up as it is today. And just all of the accessories and the dolls that came to life that you actually got to see and touch in person. Because, you know, as we, this was back in the 90s, when the American Girl doll catalog showed up and you could flip through and see all of the dolls with their, with their accessories and everything, and then actually getting to go see it in person and maybe get to buy some of it on sale uh, was always a very exciting time. But that came to an end after 35 years last year. So, between that last year, this office closing, it does somewhat feel like an end of an era, despite American Girls living on, and you can go to Chicago and go to the flagship stores and do tea time and all the things. Yeah, but it doesn't have like that feel, because the other part that we didn't really touch on was the, the philanthropic efforts also, because the people who founded it were huge in the Madison, oh, Middleton yeah. area, like giving millions and millions of dollars. I mean, Pleasant Roland. Yes. Third or fourth richest woman in wisconsin yeah because she sold it for 770 million dollars and so (laughs) good for her and but like what's so cool about it is that you have places like the children's museum that benefit from it you have places like 
the Boys and Girls Club or the arts, you know, whatever youth center or Mona the school. Can... Dis- yes, or schools where even if it's not the largest employer with a company like this, you have such a connection to the community in which you operate that other things benefit off of it. And you just have to kind of wonder in five years, I'm sure some of this giving will live on, but in five years or in eight years or 10 years or whatever it is, when the next generation of employees at Mattel don't have a connection at all or don't know that there was an office there, you kind of wonder if some of that will, will dry up. And it would be really unfortunate, I think, for a company like this to, to kind of lose touch totally with a place that they began. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're almost at the end of the show. We're going to come back and talk to, uh, to John McCure. See how what he has coming up for the Wisconsin's Afternoon News. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am your host, Kristen Bry, and we have come to the end of our first show. We can never say it's our first show ever again, Michael Spalding. We got all the mistakes ironed out. Tomorrow's totally. going to go so smooth. Tomorrow's going to be perfect. Perfect. And uh, tomorrow, Steve Scafidi will be joining me, and I'm so excited to be having him by my side, considering he is the reason I got into radio. It was the first time uh, three and a half years ago I got a Twitter DM from Steve Scafidi asking if he w- if I would like to come on his show. And as they say, the rest was history. You're going to make him sit in the guest chair? Probably. My how the tables have turned. The I know. I feel like the master. I feel like that's the that's the right moves to make him sit next to me and and play second fiddle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to say, uh, I'm so excited. Last week, no, yeah, last week we we had a partner event to get everyone excited. And John McCure, you get you stood up and you gave a speech that made me want to run through a wall for you. Because have you ever right. thought of being a Let's motivational go. speaker? It's fun to speak, isn't it? Oh my gosh, you you gave this speech about how we're all friends here we are. and what we're doing and how yes. important this is and I was just ready to That's give so a That's nice Hi-ya! of you. That's nice of you to say that. <laughs> it's it's here. It's today. I've been listening to you. It's fun. You got great energy. You got Spalding in here. I am so excited about spanning the state because you're going to do things we haven't really done at the station, which is really go out and chase the story wherever it's happening. If it's southeast Wisconsin, great. If it's somewhere else, it's cool to know you're going to be on that, too. That's I, that's what I'm so excited about. I feel like there's there's so many similarities. There's th- stuff that affects the whole state. But knowing how commerce, whether it's paper, whether it's cranberries, whether it's yes. obviously cheese, but the things that we know are quintessentially Wisconsin, but sometimes don't understand how it affects us and vice yeah. versa, how Milwaukee yeah. and things that are happening here also affect things up in Bayfield and Ashland yeah. and Wausau and Wisconsin Rapids, which is where my parents live. Like, I love the American Girls segment that you did. My girls, I have twin girls that are now 30. So they're kind of in that, ripe, that ripe age. I have crates at home. Molly and Kit are their two American Girl dolls. And not only do we have Molly and Kit, we have the beds, the clothes, yep. the doghouse. We have everything. And so to listen to your perspective on what that means, that in Middleton, Wisconsin, that's going to change is a big deal for all the rest of us. Absolutely. Because did you did you ever go to the warehouse sale? Oh yeah, we went to the warehouse sale. We went to the place where you have tea in Chicago. Yep. We went. Oh yeah. So here's the big question: Is your wife saving those for grandchildren? Then. Well, here's the debate. That's a great question. She says yes. I say let's keep the boxes and save them for selling them someday. <laughs> But yeah, I think they're for the grandchildren. Because yeah. my mother, because I just had my first child in yeah. in the fall, and my so she's a little early to be playing with very expensive <laughs> dolls. But my mother has saved these dolls 
four years in order to gift them to my See, children. that's awesome. Um, so, how many dolls do you have? I think we had, I had three. I had okay. Addie. I had Samantha. Oh, I remember Samantha. And then I had one that looked like me, which was basically just the Kirsten doll with brown eyes. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) Yeah, so I love that. 